Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today, we're going to be continuing a series that we began a few weeks ago called Sink or Stand. And this series is anchored in Matthew chapters 14 and 15, where Jesus is inspiring faith in his followers by revealing more of who he is, inviting his disciples to really stand and not sink amidst the challenges of this life. He invites them to to walk upon the water. He invites them to feed the 5,000, to feed the 4,000. And we've been walking through a number of different passages, seeing how you and I can have faith in Jesus as well. Today, we're going to continue that series by looking at someone, a most unlikely someone, who stood upon the waves in the face of Christ. And that was a Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. We're going to look at that story together here in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to talk about a word that is somewhat of a buzzword inside of our culture today, and that word is the word entitled. You ever see that word or hear that word shared? It's very common inside of our culture today for this word to be used. It's, it's used in politics as people talk about what citizens can expect from their government. It's, it's used by coaches of teams where they talk about their players or their athletes, their recruits, and their attitudes they have. Sometimes it's used by employers of employees or parents of their children. Um, but this word entitled, what does it really mean? When we look up on dictionary.com, this is the definition that we see. It says that entitled is the belief that one is inherently deserving of privileges or special treatment. Now, when we think about that definition in this word that is very common inside of our culture, one thing that I've noticed is though this word is used frequently and often in a lot of different contexts, nobody wants that word attached to themselves. I've yet to meet the person that says, you know what I'm going to do with my September? I'm going to be more entitled. That's my goal for September, is I want more people to come up to me and tell me that I am entitled. Uh, That's just not something that is part of our vernacular. It's not on our wish list right? But I think that this is still a category that is challenging for us because I think at some level, all of us deal with a temptation towards feelings of entitlement. And what we see in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28, is we see an example of an unentitled person in their relationship with God. Now, let me just ask you for a moment to just think, what would an unentitled person look like? I want you to, to really just, just think it through. What does an unentitled person look like? Get, think of just a description in your head. Because what we're going to do is we're going to look at Matthew 15, 21 through 28, and then we're going to end our time by comparing what we see in Scripture to maybe what we imagine it would look like to be unentitled before God. So we're going to look at that topic today from Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. If you've got a Bible, open up to those verses. We're going to be camped in them for the entirety of our time here. I want to read them for us, and then we'll back up and, and unpack them to find a little more of their meaning and connection to our lives today. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21 begins this way. 
It says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from their region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But Jesus did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. Then she replied and said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Friends, in these few verses here today, we're going to see two things that are absolutely critical for us to understand about our relationship with God. The first thing that we need to see from these verses is this. We are saved by grace. This is a a truth that is spoken of throughout Scripture, but it's a truth that is highlighted in a very three-dimensional way in this account in Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Now, where do we see that inside of these verses? Well, the first thing I think it's important for us to do is to set these verses inside of some context. See, what we see here is that Jesus had experienced a number of challenging circumstances. If you remember back to the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus had wanted to to get away by himself or with the disciples for a time of reflection, but everywhere he went, he was experiencing some trials. It began back at the beginning of chapter 14 when Herod Antipas had killed John the Baptist and then turned his attention towards Jesus. And so Jesus left Capernaum, which was under the rule of Herod Antipas, and went across the Sea of Galilee to a different region near Bethsaida where he could find some protection away from Herod. And then when he lands on the shore, he is surrounded by the crowds at Bethsaida that he eventually feeds, the feeding of the 5,000. But then after that miracle, the crowds press in around Jesus and want to make him king, but it wasn't yet time for that. And so Jesus retreats away into the mountains and sends his disciples ahead on a boat. Now, while they're on the boat, a storm comes up. And so Jesus ends up walking on the water where he he eventually is challenged by the literal waves of the Sea of Galilee, but also the waves of unbelief of his closest followers. Eventually, Jesus and his disciples land on the shore near the town of Gennesaret, and people are, again, crowding around him, bringing to him the sick and the oppressed. And even as they touch the edge of his garment, they're being healed. And so Jesus is crowded around by them. And then last week we saw how a delegation was sent from Jerusalem to go up to Jesus, a group of Pharisees and scribes who meet Jesus and challenge him about his hand-washing practices and how he doesn't follow the tradition of their elders. After all of these experiences, Jesus believes it's time to get away. He needs to go to a place to get some rest, a time of reflection with his disciples. And so what does he do? He goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. On the map, you'll see the red star there is roughly where they were at Gennesaret, and they go 30 to 50 miles north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, 
This is what's significant about that. Tyre and Sidon are out of the country. They're out of Israel proper. It's into the land of the Gentiles. That's where Jesus goes. We might think of it this way. If you've ever tried to take a staycation but been unable to get rest because your, your cell phone keeps blowing up, how do you provide some, some rest from that? Well, there is a power button on it, right? But if that is too great a temptation for us to turn off, sometimes we'll go to the mountains, to the Rocky Mountains where we might be outside of cell coverage. Or if we're really aggressive and have the means, we might get on a plane and fly to Cancun or to Mexico or to another country just to get away. Jesus does just that here. He takes off and he goes 30 to 50 miles outside of the sphere of Israel in order to gain some alone time with his disciples. Jesus didn't go up to Tyre and Sidon to hold an evangelistic crusade. We know that because he will say in his interactions here in the verses we're going to look at in just a moment that he did not come at this point. His ministry was focused only on the Jews. He wouldn't have gone to Gentile territory to hold a crusade. Jesus went up there to get some rest. But Jesus is unable to be incognito because he's Jesus, right? You don't go around and do the things he was doing and preach the message he was preaching and be able to find a place where people won't identify you. And so even though he's in a foreign country, his reputation goes before him and people begin to crowd around him. And one of the people that that found him, that approached him, was a Canaanite woman who was experiencing some challenging circumstances. This Canaanite woman was of Syrophoenician background. That's what Mark tells us in his parallel account of this story. She was somebody who was native to that land around where Tyre and Sidon was. And she comes to Jesus and she expresses her need. She had a daughter who was severely oppressed by a demon. Now, what would be the path of events that would lead this woman to come to Jesus? Well, we can imagine the story, right? She was somebody who had a daughter who had great needs. And there was nobody in her region who could help provide for those needs, that could meet those needs. She might have visited every religionist, every holy person in her area. She might have dropped to her knees and prayed to every god, offered sacrifices to all of the the gods in her country, which were no gods at all. But she might have turned to them seeking some help. And in every instance, she turned up empty. Her daughter was still oppressed. And so she hears that Jesus was in their area. And she knows something about the God of Israel. Remember, she is from that region. She would have known the reputation of the God of Israel through all the events that we know of as our Old Testament. This was a God of great power. Not only would she have known something about the God of Israel, but she also would have heard stories about Jesus who was going in the name of the God of Israel and performing all of these miracles. As a matter of fact, she knew enough to even possibly think that Jesus was the Messiah, as she calls him the son of David. And so she comes to Jesus out of options and thinking that he might be able to work. Now what's interesting is she shows up at the feet of Jesus. She does not come from a position of strength. If she were an attorney that was coming to argue her case as to why Jesus should help her, She understood that she had no arguments to make. In this sense, she was not entitled at all 
She understood that she was not a person that Jesus was required to help. Now, think about some of the other things we might know about her. She was somebody that was from the wrong religious background. She had grown up in a foreign country. She had grown up worshiping other gods. She was a part of the wrong religion. Not only that, she was a part of the wrong nationality. Syrophoenician, not Israeli, was on her passport. She was not a part of the covenant people of God. She was an outsider. Not only that, but she was from the wrong past. She had not lived a life that was stellar or exemplary. As a matter of fact, Matthew does something interesting when he calls her a Canaanite. Remember, Mark calls her the Syrophoenician woman. I mentioned that earlier. That was her ethnicity. That would have made sense. Mark was writing to a Gentile audience. He wanted to highlight among his audience that Jesus would provide care and ultimately do a miracle for one of them. But Matthew here calls her a Canaanite. What was he doing? He was pointing back to her ultimate heritage. She was somebody who was related to the very enemies of God all the way back through the stories of the Old Testament and the conquest of the land. She was somebody that had the wrong past. She was somebody that was approaching Jesus at the wrong time. Friends, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus is going to take the message of the gospel and blow the doors off it and say, we're to take this message to people all over the world, regardless of where they live, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their ethnicity. But at this point in time, space, history, Jesus' ministry was focused on the Jews. Matthew chapter 10, he instructs the disciples to go out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel only on their evangelistic journeys. He interacts with the woman here and says that he is focused on his ministry to the Jews. See, if she had waited just a year or so on the other side of the crucifixion and the resurrection, the timing would have seemed better. She didn't even have that going for her at this point. The time seemed wrong. Not only that, but her circumstance was not unique. Jesus was surrounded by those that needed something from him, and many of them in situations more aggressive and more challenging than the one she was experiencing. People brought dead children to Jesus, much less one who was oppressed. So when we think about what this woman didn't have going for her, she shows up at Jesus and she can make no argument that says, Jesus, you must help me because X, Y, or Z. And she understood that because what is her argument? She says, Lord, son of David, what does she say? Have mercy upon me. In other words, it's not on the basis of me that you would help me, but simply by your volition, because you can. Lord, would you please show mercy upon me? Well, what happens next is maybe some of the most surprising verses for us from my American eyes in the 21st century, what flows next is one of the most intriguing conversations that Jesus has. It begins by him not having a conversation at all. She falls at his feet and she says, Lord, please have mercy on me. But verse 23, Jesus did what? He didn't answer her a word. He was silent. 
She persisted in her request, and that's demonstrated because the disciples come to Jesus and they said, Jesus, just do what she wants. We know that you can heal this woman's daughter. You can, you can heal her just like that. Heal her and send her away so that we can get back to our vacation, so that we can enjoy the beauty of Tyre and Sidon together. They come to him and they say, Jesus, just take care of her situation and dismiss her. But Jesus persists in his silence. And then when he opens his mouth, he doesn't turn to address her. Instead, he talks to the disciples. And what does he say? He says to the disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus says, hey, my mission right now is focused on the Jewish people. In many ways, friends, what he is doing here is he is highlighting and underlining, and he says, I am not obligated to help this woman. Well, what happens next? After he says that, the woman hears the conversation between Jesus and the disciples, and she kneels before him. She doubles down, and she says, Lord, help me. Verse 26, Jesus says, It is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. Now, friends, I don't know if you've thought much about what Jesus might say when you stand face to face with him. But of all of the names that he would call you, I'm guessing dog is not near the top of that list. You know, I'm hoping for Mark, maybe my legal name, Richard, maybe son or child or friend. But here, Jesus is standing face-to-face with this woman, and he calls her a dog. Many people have tried to soften this, but we need to let that sink in for just a moment, what's happening. Now, why would Jesus say that? Well, what Jesus is doing, I believe here, is he is drawing this conversation out to make a very important point. I'll point that out here in just a moment. But I think that as Jesus is doing this interaction, he's going to take a a, a nickname for Gentiles that Jews had, and he's going to play a game with it. See, Gentiles would call, or Jews would call Gentiles dogs. That was a, a negative word that was used towards the Gentile people. And here Jesus uses that word in this conversation. And this is what he is saying. He says, not so much to put her down, as it was to underline the fact that he was not required to help her because there was a priority order in terms of the assistance that God would provide that salvation will be offered first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. See, Jesus uses an illustration that would be common, and basically he makes an argument that goes something like this. Who among you, when you are providing food for your family, feeds your animals before you feed your children? No, you would always feed your children First, no matter how much you love your new puppy, you would feed your own children before you would ever feed the puppy. And Jesus is making an argument as he unfolds this here, as he says, I I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel first, and this is the season of that ministry going out. I'm not obligated in any way to help this woman at this point. He's just underlining that point. And what's fascinating to me is when Jesus says that, the woman doesn't argue with him. As a matter of fact, she agrees with him. Do you notice what she says? She says, verse 27, yes, Lord. 
In other words, he just called her a dog. He just said that there was a priority order of the way that God's grace was going to be given out to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. And she goes, yes, you're right. You're right, Jesus, when you say that. But then she makes this little comment. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Here's what she's saying. I know what you're saying is right. I have nothing in me that can demand you to work, that can require you to take action on my behalf. But the woman says, "But, but if just a little bit of your grace would fall off the table, that would be enough for me. She knew she could not demand that Jesus help her, but she just asked because he could that his grace might be extended to her. Now, friends, it's at this point, as we think about that, that we realize that her request for mercy and her request for help are really the pattern for you and for me. You see, we have some things in common with the Canaanite woman. We are not a group of people who could stand before God and on our own merits demand that he act on our behalf. See, if if we desire for God's work to be extended towards us, it must be on the basis of his grace. It must be on the basis of his mercy because we're not good enough otherwise. I mean, just look at this list. At least one of these, if not multiple of these things could be applied to us. See, Some of us, many of us, grew up in the wrong religion. We might have grown up not understanding the the nature of our hope that is found in Jesus alone. We might have even grown up in a household that followed Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam or or some other non-religious or irreligious background. That, That might be your experience. You might be from the wrong religion. You might be, from your perspective, from the wrong nationality. You might think, you know, I'm I'm here, I'm studying at the University of Oklahoma, but home for me is Indonesia. Home for me is China. Home for me is someplace far, far away. And Christianity might make sense for you, but I have no ability to approach God because I'm from the wrong country. Some of you might might think that. Some others might think that, that our past is just so broken and many times we've been an enemy of God, other, either standing up against those who were, who were standing with Christ and, and persecuting them in some way or making fun of them or just living a life that is so full of sin and error that we feel like there's no standing we would ever have to come before God. We might feel like this is the wrong time of our life for whatever reason because this isn't done or that isn't done or this hasn't happened or that hasn't happened. We think that our circumstances are just playing into that some way. Friends, we have something in common with the Canaanite woman. And that thing that we have in common is that we do not have it within ourselves to stand before God and demand that he act. We cannot be entitled because we have no case to make. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, every single one of us. Our only hope is as this woman to cry out, have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. The New Testament talks about this in other places as it refers to salvation. One of the most poignant ones is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where it says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. 
This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one should boast. Friends, it is by God's grace that we're saved. We are not entitled because we have no case to make. If we have any hope, it is going to be on the basis of God's grace, of God's mercy. And here's what's wonderful about that. God provides that grace and that mercy. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says it so beautifully. It says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Grace is a gift that we don't deserve. We don't deserve it because we're sinners. But what God provided was Jesus to die on the cross to take the penalty for our sins so that we might be forgiven. Our only hope, the hope of the Canaanite woman, is that of God and his grace and his mercy doing for us what would otherwise be impossible on our own. Friends, may we never, ever, ever lose sight of the fact that we are saved by grace. But the passage continues. Not only does this passage give us an illustration that we are saved by grace, but this passage also lets us know in uncertain terms that we are saved by grace through faith. See, faith inside of Matthew chapter 14 and 15 is, is all over the place, but we're given many examples, some positive, some negative. And there's at least three different kinds of faith that are, that are demonstrated inside of Matthew chapter 14 and 15. The first kind of faith that we might see is the faith of the Pharisees, which is really no faith at all a faithless life. See, the Pharisees are the ones that walked 80 miles from Jerusalem to Gennesaret to ask Jesus about his hand-washing practices. They did not come there to seek him or to trust him. They came there to reject him or to refute him. They had no faith in him whatsoever. They were relying only upon themselves and their own righteousness. That's the faith of the Pharisees. It's no faith at all. But we also saw just a couple of weeks ago the, the, the faith of Peter, who was out there walking upon the water. And when Peter was looking at Jesus and trusting in him, he was standing tall. But when he takes his eyes off of Jesus and looks at his circumstances and his surrounding, what happens to him? He sinks. And when he sinks, Jesus says to him, oh, Peter, you of little faith. In other words, you have just a little bit of faith. Now, I look at that story and I think, that's a pretty significant faith, right? To stand on top of the Sea of Galilee. But what Jesus was saying was, your faith was there for a little while. You had faith for a while, but the first challenge that came about, you let that knock you off your bearings. And instead of continuing to look to me, you looked to yourself and you sank. That's a little bit of faith. But friends, when we look at the story of the Canaanite woman, we see the story of great faith. What does Jesus say in verse 28? He says, oh woman, great is your faith. What does great faith look like? It looks like what the Canaanite woman demonstrated here inside of this story. It's a model for us of what great faith looks like. Now, how is this woman demonstrating great faith? What did, what did she do that demonstrated this kind of a faith in God? Well, there's a few things that we can see. The first way that she demonstrated faith was that she left her former life. She left her former gods. 
See, in the past, she might have turned to the religionists of Tyre and Sidon. She might have looked to the gods of that region, which were no gods at all, to provide her help or her protection, to provide the relief for her daughter. But in, in this situation here, she walks away from those things. She trusts in them no longer, and she walks away from them and towards Jesus. She, she shows up at his feet. She says, it's not these other things that will provide what I need, but it's you, Jesus. And then when she identifies that that help is going to be in Jesus, what does she do? She humbly worships him. She hits her knees. She kneels before him. She says, Jesus, you are great and I am not. My only hope, she says, is in you, that you would have mercy upon me, that you would help me. It's interesting, that picture of of kneeling before him is the same word that is used in the rest of the New Testament of worship. She bowed before him. She made much of him and little of herself. And then not only that, but she persisted. She persisted in that belief. Unlike Peter before, she persisted even in the face of opposition. Jesus is silent. She doesn't leave. Jesus speaks even something that, that we might have taken as, as a, some kind of a death blow to her chances at help, and she stayed right there. Why? Because she understood that her only hope was found in him. She persisted in that faith, and Jesus played this story out to demonstrate that salvation was by grace, but not only was it by grace, but it was by grace through faith. Now, friends, with all of that as the background, I want to just ask you this question. What kind of faith do you have? What kind of faith is in you? This morning, People have been here in the earlier service, and people are here in this service, and and everybody that walks in here has some degree of faith. On a spectrum, they're somewhere between no faith and great faith. Where are you on that spectrum today? Are you here as a person of no faith? And by that, I don't mean that you don't believe in anything. I just mean that primarily, as it relates to your eternity, you're depending upon yourself. You're looking to yourself primarily for your hope for all time, your good works, your good deed, your religion, your background, your pedigree. I believe that there are those with us today who are people of of no faith inside of this story, like the Pharisees, dependent upon ourselves. Here's the hope, though. If if that is who we are, we, we we can progress, we can move, we can grow. There's an opportunity, just as there was for this woman. But I believe there are some here who are people of no faith today. I think there are also people who are, who are like Peter today, who have a little bit of faith. At some point in your past, you began trusting in Christ, but somehow you've lost your bearings. You grew up in a background where you learned about Jesus and you, you trusted him. You were baptized as a child, but you went off to college and, and suddenly you've been knocked kilter by something you heard in a class or some, some things that are, are going on or a friend group or whatever it is that is, you're, you're following in the wrong direction. You used to have faith, but now you've been shaken. Are you a person of, of little faith? It's not just young people, it's old people too, right? It's amazing to me. I, I have friends who, as adults, their parents have divorced, and how much that shakes their confidence and their faith. An illness that lingers, that diagnosis is challenging for, it can shake our faith. 
There are some who are here today that I think are in that category of people of a little bit of faith. Then there are others who are here today like the Canaanite woman who have great faith. But here's the thing. When we think about those three categories, where do you want to be? I mean, it's, it's 11.50 on a Sunday morning, so I understand that I'm preaching to the choir here. We are a group of people that desire to have great faith. But what does it look like for us to have great faith? Well, great faith for us, again, can be anchored back to the example that we see in the Canaanite woman. Are are we willing to to leave our our other devices, our other things, the places where we find our our value in other places and, and come to him, to Jesus, to humbly worship him, to fall at his feet and to just express to him, our only hope is in you, Jesus. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to persist in belief even when there's silence or even when we hear an answer that we can't make sense of? Are we willing to persist in belief in Jesus? If so, then we are developing a great faith that allows us to receive the grace that God has offered to us. Now, here's the thing. When we believe like that, a tremendous blessing is extended to us. In John chapter 3 and verse 16, it says it very clear, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There is a gift of eternal life that is on the other side of the grace of God received in faith. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9, again, we saw this earlier. For it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. It's not our own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. Because that, friends, is the gospel. Because that is the hope that we have. Right now, where we sit, wherever we are on that spectrum, we can lean in with great faith and see the blessing of God extended to us. Now, I want to wrap up where we began. And I want to wrap up back with this idea of entitled. Now, when I talked about the unentitled life, and I had you think about what it was, what did you think about? (laughs) Well, many of us probably had some thought that went like this. An unentitled life is a life that, that works. It's a life that works really hard. It's a life that, that earns what is given to us. But spiritually speaking, the unentitled spiritual life is a life that believes that it is only by God's grace that I am who I am, that I have what I have, and that I will be what I will be. Friends, as we lean forward in an unentitled way following Christ, we will do so falling upon his grace and receiving it in faith, just like the Canaanite woman. Father God, thank you for the privilege and the opportunity of looking at your word today. And thank you for uh, the hope that it provides for us who, who need hope. Father, we are not people who can make an argument for why you should help us. When we think properly about ourselves, we understand that our only hope is for you to help us, for you to, to extend mercy to us. And so, Father, for every soul in this room, I pray that we would right now in this moment, that we would be embracing by faith this gift of grace that you offer in Jesus. 
that we would receive his death on the cross as the sacrifice for our sins and that we would follow in great faith, persistent faith, you in this life. Father, thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.